Let's begin with meditation. So let your body just relax. Whether you're on a cushion or a chair, you want to find a comfortable posture that also lets you stay attentive and awake. You can roll your shoulders back to help you lift your spine back and down. And all through the practice, as you exhale, try to imagine and literally drop your shoulders a bit. You might notice if you have any tension in your body, your shoulders will just keep rising up until they're up around your ears. Just take in a few, maybe just two, deeper breaths. That helps us become centered, tells your body you're shifting to a different activity. Just bring your mind and body together in the present moment. Let go of the past, no need to worry about the future. Just be in this moment. Whenever you discover that you're somewhere else, or you're distracted by your thoughts, that's a wonderful point in your meditation because then you can come back to your breath and start start all over again. Stay with your breath for a few minutes. Be in your body. Be aware of any places where you feel tightness or pain or tension. You can imagine you're just breathing into that spot for one or two breaths and then on the exhale just release that tightness. Let's begin our practice 
with loving-kindness. We always begin with ourselves, sending good thoughts to ourselves. These are actually blessings that we send to ourselves. May I be well, both physically and mentally. May I feel safe in the world. May I be content, and may I know happiness and joy. And may I live in peace. Just say these phrases to yourself. and try to really mean it. Often this is the hardest part of this practice, is sending this goodness and these good wishes to ourselves. May I be well, both physically and mentally. May I feel safe in the world. May I be content and know happiness and joy. And may I be at peace. Now think of a loved one, someone close to you, maybe a family member, maybe a dear friend. But someone you really love and care about. May this loved one be well, both mentally and physically. May they be content and know joy and happiness. May they feel safe in this world. And may they live in peace.
Now let yourself feel these same thoughts radiating out from you from all directions. May all beings everywhere, humans and non-humans, beings we can see and beings invisible to us, all of the animals that we love, all the wild animals, all the animals we fear, and even send this metta out beyond this planet, You can radiate metta, loving-kindness, friendliness. You can radiate it out forever. Send it out to those being born and those who are dying or have recently passed. May all living beings, human and non-human, be free from suffering and the causes of suffering. May all beings be free from fear and worry and anxiety, free from hunger and thirst and the dangers of climate change. May all beings be able to care for themselves or be cared for lovingly by others. And may all beings everywhere live in peace, both within and without.
Now this, just bring your attention to your breath. Be with each breath in and each breath out. Pay attention to each breath. When you inhale, is it deep or shallow? Or is it long or short? So just let your attention rest very gently on the breath. Be aware of everything your senses pick up on, sound, smell, taste, touch, and your mind, our thoughts and our emotions. But don't get caught up in them. Don't feed them with your attention. Just have that awareness. And just let your thoughts come and go. Don't try to force them to stop. Don't try to control them, but just be aware of those thoughts like little clouds in an open sky. let those little clouds pass by. Eventually, they'll get tired of you just ignoring them or just observing them and they'll go away. Check your body, be sure it's still relaxed. Let your shoulders drop. If there's pain in the body or you need to adjust your posture, that's perfectly okay. We're not rocks. 
Just keep letting go. Where is your mind? Just bring that focus back to your breath.
May you be well and happy and peaceful, and may all living beings be well, be happy, and be peaceful. Thank you. Now, if you want to chant with us, we begin on page four. Namo tasse bhagavato arehato sammasambuddhase Namo tasse bhagavato arehato sammasambuddhase Namo tasse bhagavato arehato sammasambuddhase buddhang saranangachami dhammang saranangachami Sangang sadenang gachami Dutiang pi budang sadenang gachami Dutiang pi stamang sadenang gachami Dutiang pi sangang sadenang gachami Tatiang pi budang sadenang gachami Tatiang pi amang sadenang gachami Tatiampi sangang saranang gachami Anicca vata sankara upadavaya dhammino Upajitwa nirujanti Te sanghupa sammosuko Sabe santa avera hontu Sabe santa Apya paja hontu sabe sata aniga hontu sabe sata sukiyatanam pariharantu. Mano 
should either speak or act, suffering follows caused by that, as does the wheel follow the ox's hoof. Mind is a forerunner of all states. Mind is chief. Mind made are they. If with a clear mind, speak or act, happiness follows caused by that, as one shadow that never leaves. We believe in generosity toward others. We believe the skillful, noble path is marked by generosity. We believe generosity has many levels. Think generously, speak generously, act generously. We believe generosity is the heart of our spiritual practice. And this practice allows us to become more open accepting, and forgiving. We believe extending generosity to ourselves and others is the direct way of healing division, bringing joy, and nurturing this spiritual community for years to come. May I become at all times, both now and forever, a protector for those without protection, a guide for those who have lost their way, a ship for those with an ocean to cross, a sanctuary for those in danger, a lamp for those without light, a place of refuge for those who lack shelter, and a servant to all in need. By means of this meritorious deed, may I never join with the unwise, only the wise, until the time I attain Nibbana. Thank you. I'm Wimala. If, if I don't know you, um, and I don't know a lot, but if I know you, it's great to see you. And if I don't know you, 
hopefully we get to meet. Um, I am. I hope. I hope if you were here Tuesday, you've forgotten everything I said because I want to continue with that topic. The topic is on silence, and uh, it came up for me in a big way last weekend. I do a, a retreat that's called Moving into Silence, and I've been doing it for 15 years with a good friend who's a yoga teacher, and. Uh, we decided that the one this last weekend was the, the noisiest. There were more violations of the silence rule than we'd had maybe, maybe forever in the retreat. And uh, sadly, she said, and I think the Blue Lotus group was the worst, <laughs> were the worst offenders. <laughs> that was, I don't want to spread that word, but... Uh, and you know it was old friends getting together. It was the it was the uh, yeah some of those people are here, um, but it was you know after uh, after the pandemic it's been hard for people when people get together with friends they don't see a lot it's hard to keep them quiet but um, it made me think a lot because there was one person who kept asking what's the, what's what does silence mean what does it mean in a re-? you know she was there she wanted to come to the retreat and she liked it but her constant question was why silence and uh, we'd even asked people what attracted them, them to the retreat was it the word retreat or the word silence and uh, her question kept coming up so after the retreat, when when we thought the only thing that would have could have been better would have been more silence was, uh, you know, it made me want to think about it some more and think about, you know, we've been doing it for so long that we don't even think about it. So there are lots of suttas we know where the Buddha talked about silence, and we know that our primary practice, which is meditation, is a silent practice. And we lead guided meditations here, but more and more as you practice at home and as you become, you know, you're into your practice, you don't need words to guide you. So that's true for almost all spiritual traditions. They all have that component of silence and prayer and other forms of meditation. And in our uh, meditation, one of the differences between what we do in prayer is we're not speaking. You know, in prayer you're usually either asking for or, you know, speaking, putting things out. And uh, in meditation we're not. What we're looking for and what we call noble silence is that calm, peaceful, still mind. So there's silence, but then there's noble silence. And silence can be noisier than listening to the cars zoom by here in the summer. So our minds are so full, and we talk about monkey mind, and lots of people will say, I can't meditate because my mind's too busy. Um, we all have monkey mind. We all have that too much busyness in our heads because we're trained to do, we're trained that way. We're, we're raised that way. 
because we have to learn things and we have to talk and we have to communicate, so it's normal. But when we get to the point where we want to find out how to be, have some stillness, that stillness we're looking for is what we call noble silence. So when we talk about the meditation hall, this is where we keep noble silence. So we, we might cross the line and be talking and chatting and, you know, back to monkey mind over on this other side. But we try to keep this as a place for noble silence. It's hard sometimes. But that silence isn't about little noises we hear. That silence is about what's rattling around up here. And that's, you know, we all know that sometimes that's louder than anything. And then we add things like music or outside sounds or keep the TV on all day for company and listen to the radio or listen to music, and that just adds to it. So where, where is the calm and the calm abiding, and where, where do we have the silence so we can just keep going deeper? Uh, a lot of times it's, it's impossible. it feels impossible. So I, in my search looking for more, you know, the, the suttas that we can find, or the Buddha often didn't answer people when they asked questions. So his answer was silence. And sometimes his silence meant no, something. But sometimes his silence was to affirm something. Or it was a silence that was the, that was the answer itself. So there's a little story, and I think this is a Zen story. From from what this is from a talk. I found this wonderful talk. It was given in the 80s by a, a Catholic priest, and he's talking to a group of other Catholics. But it's it's a beautiful Buddhist talk. It's I I what he says, and you know, 86 is like what 30. 38 years ago, some, so this is, there weren't a lot, there was no internet, and there were, uh, you know, the, this, we, we couldn't have found any kind of a talk this good probably for most of us uh, from a Buddhist monk back in the 80s. But he does such a beautiful job. I want to share some of the stories from his talk, and I won't get into, well, I, I'll just I won't get into what he said to the Catholics, but he then talks about how G. It, it's it, that's lovely too, but we don't have an hour. But the but his um, he made the uh, this beautiful transition from talking about the Buddha and silence into talking to uh, his Catholic brothers and sisters about the the importance of silence and the different kinds of silence, and also how Jesus had the same teachings. So this is this little Zen story he keeps talking about, so I'll read it. And the last line of this, when you read it the first time, it sounds like it's talking about animal abuse, but it's not. It's, it's a different... Remember, uh, horses, and especially horses for uh, uh, warriors and to pull, to pull the carts that they would take out into battle were very important. So a lot of the, there are several of the Buddha's suttas that talk about training a horse. Like how do you compare training a man to, he, tra he compares training a person the way you would train a horse. 
And the favorite for all of us when we read that sutta, especially in a class, is finally, if he can't, all these gentle, gentle techniques don't work. What does he do? He says, well, he just he kills the horse, or gets rid of the horse. And it sounds, so, it sounds terrible, but he's just talking about if you can't train a horse eventually for, to, to be a, a horse carrying someone out on a, uh, what do they call the, the, ch- the chariots, uh, then you can't use that horse. That horse is useless to you in terms of a, a, a warrior's horse. So this one is a different different story, but don't let the don't don't misunderstand the last line. A philosopher, and I think he means another mendicant, another uh, one of the other people like the Buddha's uh, monks. The the groups in India in that period of time were traveling around the country. This is up in northern India. And they would get together in different uh, villages and towns and have, have talks and debates and have different forms of ways of getting together and talking to other teachers and their groups. And uh, they loved to debate each other and all these, it was mostly philosophical or theosoph- uh, uh, religious conversations, spiritual and, and philosophical. So they loved to uh, engage with each other, and they were all these renunciants going around. So he, this, the, this talk calls it a philosopher. <clears throat> a philosopher once visited Buddha and asked him, without words, without the wordless, and the wordless means maybe signs or gestures, but not, not speech, Without words, without the wordless, will you tell me the truth? Buddha kept silence. After a while, the philosopher rose up gently, made a solemn bow, and thanked Buddha, saying, With your loving kindness, I have cleared away all my delusions and entered the true path. When the philosopher left, Ananda, a senior disciple of Buddha, inquired, O blessed one, what hath this philosopher attained? And the Buddha just replied, A good horse runs even at the shadow of the whip. So then he explains it, and in explaining it, he talks about what he's talking about with silence. So, This story is an illustration of the manner and the method that Gautama Buddha used uh, to help express, to experience truth and to express truth. His entire life could be briefly summed up as a relentless search, a revolutionary discovery, and a revealing experience of truth. Stories and anecdotes attributed to him in popular Buddhist legends, like the the art, architecture, and sculpture that endeavor to capture and contain the radical mystique of the person of Buddha, often, if not always, present him as a serene, sober, and silent sage. His first disciples and followers also perceive these qualities of serenity, sobriety, and silence as indistinguishable traits of his enlightened personality. You know, here's a good example. (laughs) This is 
this is typically, you know, there's that slight smile on the Buddha's face usually. And even when we meditate, that very slight smile, it's good to remember to have that on your face. It kind of relaxes the muscles too. But this is that serenity. And it's clearly uh, evokes silence when you look at it, don't you? I think. So this is the, I'm going to do a very brief uh, looking at the little story. So this is going to, should unfold for us, an import, the importance and the necessity of silence as an indispensable means towards an interior experience of the truth. Because as we look at later, silence at the interior and exterior levels is the main condition for both meditation and contemplation. In fact, despite the doctrinal differences that separate the various schools of Buddhism, and this, this uh, priest, this Catholic priest taught, he had a, uh, I think, a master's or a doctorate in Asian studies, so he taught Asian religions at, at a univer university. Uh, the the re a remarkable unity exists between these schools of Buddhism in recognizing the indispensability of silence as a powerful catalyst for meditation. So the, he, he talks about uh, the, when the Buddha was born, around 560 to 570 BC, the, the culture, the society, had two different approaches to the way they pursued their discoveries of the truth. So these are the groups of people that were going around and the people that were teaching, and uh, that was maybe the first time in their culture they had had that much activity that way. Truth was sought through either metaphysical debates and discussions. That's the first one. The second way was to enter into seclusion and solitude and search for the truth in, per in personal silence. Here the emphasis was placed on renunciation, detachment, and an ascetical way of life. So choosing the, uh, the, the Buddha definitely and decisively chose silence. And there's a word that I had was not familiar with. He chose this path, and they use the word maona, which is a Sanskrit word. Do you know what maona? And in English, it's silence. So that's the, the main characteristic of the trait, of the path. So it's, it's, a, it's a term, maona, uh, and then you can think about even, uh, well, we'll read the rest of this, uh, used all over India in all the different groups. In their tradition, all their different traditions, the word has a history of its own, Mauna, from which the noun Muni, which is, uh, well, we know that word in Pali, it might also be Sanskrit. Muni means a sage or a hermit. And uh, the mauna means 
blissful calmness, joyous recollection, tranquil quietude, and peaceful stillness. So in many, we often hear of uh, the Buddhas called Sakyamuni, is one of the names that we that came in after the the uh, Pali Canon, I think. So Sakyamuni comes from the word Muni, which means sage or, her- or hermit. But he has a, a deeper meaning for Sakyamuni. Literally, Sakyamuni means the silent one of the Sakya clan. So Buddha is a Sakya, Sakyan. And uh, Muni means it's a, and a hermit. But the popular use of this name for the Buddha also contains a dual significance. For besides referring to Buddha's clan, in certain Indian languages, the word Sakya also refers to something graceful or pleasing. So Sakyamuni can also mean one who is gracefully silent. And I love that. I love gracefully silent. Because, you know, there are silences that aren't graceful. <laughs> they're not calm, they're not graceful. Buddha began his search for the truth as a muni, walking on this graceful path of Mauna. So the philosopher in the little story, where he, the Buddha sits silently in response to his question, he's someone who symbolizes the first path the path of the debating and the discussions and the, you know, even now, like uh, uh, Tibetan monks do the debate where they're, they're trained to be very skillful and, you know, just whipping out the questions and responses. But uh, this was a philosopher back in the Buddhist time who was on that path, the one that's debate and discussion and talking. The Buddhist path is the, the quiet, gracefully silent path. Not that there wasn't teaching going on in discussions. So he, him paying a visit to Buddha to learn about the truth is, is very uncommon. He wouldn't, he wouldn't be going to the Buddha to ask for truth if he was satisfied with his own teacher. Because the path the Buddha opted for and the way chosen by the philosopher they're actually like parallel tracks, but they never intersect. So it was very rare for this philosopher to come and ask the Buddha to tell him about truth. So the decision of the philosopher to swerve from his path even indicates his acknowledgement that he's got a problem with his path. There's something not. There's something that's bothering him. So it's, uh, it points to the philosophers in here, he says, his gross disappointment with metaphysical discussions and debates. He wanted to figure them all out, and, and he wanted to get rid of the words and even the wordless, the signs and the gestures, and humbly ask Buddha to tell him the truth. And he was actually, in his question, he's actually asking the, the, the Buddha to talk without words or the wordless. So the Buddha knew that this was someone who was in a, maybe in a crisis situation or who was having some trouble, but who was very intelligent. So then Buddha can, it's, uh, this, this writer says, a great mystic like Buddha 
And I think Catholics see Buddha as a mystic to them, like the saints. So um, he could easily sense their interior, interior situation. So he could see that this philosopher was ready to, to listen to him. So he did, the Buddha didn't need anything. He didn't need any kind of setup for this person to talk to him. Um, his openness, his sublime, the sublime emptiness that could now be filled to the brim was enough. So he compares this philosopher to a good horse that is so watchfully alert and aware that it begins to run if it merely sees the shadow of the, of the whip. The whip not to beat him, but the whip that, is, that his master's giving him his directions from. The master has only to touch the whip and the horse nearly flies. He's ready. Buddha has only to look into the eyes of the philosopher and all the teachings that can ever be imparted are readily received. Wouldn't that, now that's how silent, that's how much stillness and how much uh, training and introspection that this philosopher had. He was ready. So um, this is a good story to show how truth and silence are very close. So there is unquiet silence. I'm going to skip a lot of this just to cover what I want to cover. Unsilent, unquiet silence. We all know what that is. That's that stuff that's going on in our head all the time. And we can look very calm from the outside, but you know, you, you know when you're sitting with someone, you can usually tell if their minds are full of something else or if they're just waiting for their opportunity to talk or, you know, there are unquiet silences. Then there's speechless science, silence, which is a very, is very temporary. Speechless silences, if someone is shocked, or something happens that, that they're speechless just because they're stunned. So that might be, uh, for a little bit, that might actually clear all that stuff out of the mind, but it doesn't last. So, uh, and it can even then, after that silence, instead of leading to peace, it might lead to anxiety or some tenseness. And then there's tranquil silence. And the Buddha's silence is this tranquil silence. It's not forced. Yeah, his, his silence is not forced by any internal or external factors. And I'm thinking, oh, maybe having a silent retreat is an external factor. That's, if it's forced, it's not, it isn't going to work, right? It's not guaranteed to work. I have to bring that up when we get together to talk about it. Might have to. Re- we're trying to do a reset on the retreat, and so maybe this—that's maybe changing the whole thing—is a good idea. Um, Buddha's silence of the harmony within himself, with himself, which is one of the reasons we practice metta meditation, because we're trying to create that that internal friendship with ourselves that can allow us to have exactly this this kind of uh, tranquil silence with ourselves. If you hate yourself, 
you're not going to be silent. Something's always telling you you're not good enough. Uh, you know, you're terrible. You keep, you're, you're, you're a bad person. You're no good. Nobody wants you. Nobody loves you. That's what your mind's full of. So metta practice is really good training for this kind of tranquil silence. And that with tranquil silence, there is no absence of anything. Peace and joy are inseparably interwoven into its very essence. It wells up from the depth of the Buddha's personality and overflows with a certain rhythm. It is mauna in the fullest sense of the term. It radiates energy and emanates vitality. So it's a it's the result of that harmony within himself and with the world outside. So it's that, that equanimity between the inner and the outer. It's all, it's all the same. And that's, that's hard, to, hard to have because we, right now the world is, doesn't feel like a very friendly place. So having, having everything, everything just balanced I like that a lot. Um, then there's, he talks about silence and contemplation. There is also uh, a, cont- a contemplative, also is a muni. So a contemplative is a silent one. And then he goes into uh, a little bit about emptiness. Which we and I just want to mention this, and then I'll finish. That emptiness, the way he's talking about it, and how silence and emptiness are important together. The the emptiness that comes up, it comes up. The term is used sunyata. We talk about it, but it we often think about it as a a, a Zen term. But that emptiness in this sense of talking about silence and emptiness, that emptiness can be who we are, that tranquil silence can lead to that, where we've let go of everything, all of our, we've let go of our viewpoints and our opinions and our la la la, all the stuff that we carry and hold so tightly, but it's the stuff that internally we carry and hold. It could be our traditions. It could be, you know, everything uh, wonderful and everything terrible we learned from our parents. It could be our uh, politics. It can be what we learned in school versus what we've experienced as reality for ourselves. So everything we're grasping onto and holding onto for dear life is something, it are things we can let go of to have that inner tranquility and that openness, like this philosopher with, who came to the Buddha, was to the Buddha he could see how empty, how much emptiness there was because he was ready to hear something true. And uh, he didn't have, he didn't need to debate. He didn't need to talk endlessly about, well, what I think is, you know, and if you remember being in school, either high school or college, how you could stay up night after night with your friends talking about stuff. 
now that just seems like, oh my gosh, do we really do that? Do we, we were just, with very little information, we were debating about the, the meaning of hell. Seemed, it seemed wonderful at the time, but it seems exhausting now. But you can't even, he says, uh, like tranquil silence, emptiness can't be expressed. You can't really say what it is, and if you have it. So, he, because the moment, this is so important, the moment an effort is made to express it, it loses its value. The moment we try to give it, give it our own meaning, it no longer, it is no longer emptiness, because in true emptiness, even the experience disappears. So that's one to let let that just kind of twirl around in your mind. Even the experience disappears. This is a significance of the Buddhist notion of sunyata, the attitude that Buddhists had when he left the palace and chose to become a wanderer, a muni, a, a hermit, a sage, whatever. It is not a, a negative emptiness, but a sublime emptiness that becomes the firm foundation on which the edifice of silence can stand. So, uh, you know, you think about the Buddha and how he listened to teachers when he left the palace and he gave all that life up. Then he studied with the most famous teachers of the time. And in each one, he reached and very quickly reached the top of their teachings. And they said, oh, stay with us and you can become, you know, the next teacher. And he knew there was something missing and he kept going. And when he finally left the, the third teacher, he decided he had to do it on his own. And he had to do it the, the very the very time that the last, when he finally said, I'm not going to get up from this position until, until I get the answer. And then he was in complete silence. But it was that, I'm sure it was as close to that silence of emptiness uh, as, as he could get before he became enlightened. And so he was ready to, he, he just let go of everything, even the teachings he had left, a, you know, this decadent, beautiful lifestyle where he had everything. And he'd left that, he went to these teachers, then he left that and tried to do it on his own. And he finally, at the end, and then for, took six, seven days, but he had to just sit there being completely empty to let, to become enlightened. So um, that's, that's my story on silence. And just try to remember, you know, try to remember more and more in the course of your day, you know, could I have a moment of silence? Would maybe a moment of silence give me some respite from whatever I'm going through? Or whatever, you know, at work, can you find a place to go for one or two minutes of silence? And uh, the, the, the payoff is, is big. Thank you. Thank you, Bikwini. Hi, everybody. How y'all doing? Good. Actually, I just said Bikwini, didn't I? I meant to say Vimala. It's just take get used to it. <laughs> it's, it's taken me too long, I guess. Um, you know, I was thinking about a couple of things. 
I was thinking about the things that really comfort us. I was thinking a warm bath comforts me. I was thinking about sometimes macaroni and cheese comforts me. Um, but you know what never, ever, ever doesn't comfort me? Vimala's voice and Vimala's teaching. When you are here and teaching, it's like my heart is being hugged. It doesn't even matter what you say. You could read the phone book and my heart would feel like it's being hugged. So I'm just so grateful. Uh, Guy, you're here. We're so happy to have you here. Everybody who doesn't know Guy, the reason you're sitting in this room is because of him. So thank you for being here. We're super glad to see you. Yeah, welcome, welcome. Uh, Do we have any new people today that I could welcome? Can you introduce yourself? Hi, Debbie. Welcome. Happy to have you here. Is there anybody from Talmadge, Ohio here? Hi, Connie. Welcome. We're so glad you're here. (laughs) You traveled a long way to get here. Anybody else new that we can welcome? Hi, Bobby. Hi, Bobby. Welcome. Thank you. Hi, welcome. Welcome. We're sure glad you're all here. We have some, uh, oh, more? Hi, Rebecca. Welcome. Thank you for being here. We, we, yeah, I'm going to stick around. Uh, 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 Vimala will stick See, i got to get used to this. Vimala will stick around. The monk will stick around. Uh, we can answer any questions you have as new people. We'd just love to welcome you and make you feel comfortable here. So we're thrilled you're here. A uh, couple announcements I want to make. Uh, first, just some, some housekeeping. Scale of 1 to 10, 0 is not an answer. How hungry are you? 10? 12, what else? Give me some numbers. Okay, anybody above a four, I expect at the farmer's market at the all-new Blue Lotus Temple booth where we're cooking amazing food. Even if you're a three, it's worth it. Make room for it. What's that? Look for the red tents. All right, excellent. So this is our first year. We've had a long-time dream of serving Sri Lankan food over at the farmer's market, and now we're getting to do it. Um, It's been a little glitchy and a little amazing. It's working out really, really well. Um, And it's led to some wonderful things. If you've been downstairs, you'll notice our kitchen has been um, updated and rearranged to make better use and efficiency uh, and produce as much food as we're now producing every weekend. Uh, We're getting a lot of new volunteers uh, interacting with us and being able to serve in this way, which is really wonderful. Uh, We are obviously serving some good food to the community, but what's great is we're noticing that the community the next week is showing up here for meditation which was really our ultimate objective, is say, let's get out there and introduce ourselves to the world so the world can come in here and feel some peace and refuge. So it's really, really a lovely exchange. And then the byproduct is we happen to be making a little bit of money as well, which is really great. So we had a um, a sort of a, I was going to call it a board meeting yesterday, but the agenda was nine pages long. So I think maybe that refers to a board intensive, not an agenda. And one of the things we analyzed was, what did it cost us to get this thing up and running? What is it costing us to produce it every week? And what are we making from it? And it's just going really well. It's just going really well. So we're getting a little better each time. We're finding ways to be more efficient. 
And so, um, you know, it's just been a beautiful new endeavor of ours. So please, please support it. Speaking of supporting it, we do have an, a few additional volunteer opportunities. We've kind of broken down the process into like sort of teams, like the setup team and the cooking team and the greeting team and the cleanup team, right? Um, and a couple of those teams have a few holes to fill. So if you want to find Rebecca or Tessa um, or one of the Bontes, they'll talk to you about where we need to support and where you could serve. So we'd be really grateful for that. Uh, tonight we are hosting Gontopia, Gongtopia, a gong bath and sensory experience from 6.30 to 8. Uh, the cost is $30, which can be purchased through our website, or you can scan the QR code in the social hall. Uh, and we also have now a screen in the shoe room that kind of has a rotating list of all of our events, and there's a QR code on everything that we pop up there. So when, when something comes up that you're interested in, just take a picture of it with your phone, and it'll link you right to the event page. You can sign up perfectly right there, so kind of nice and easy. And then um, a couple of other announcements. We have uh, a town hall meeting scheduled for August, and I apologize for not knowing the date, but you'll see it soon. It's somewhere near the end of August. What it, this really is a sort of an annual meeting of our community. And partly what we worked on yesterday is what we're going to share with you all. How are we doing? What's working? What's not working? What sort of some next step visions we have? What kind of classes are we looking to bring in? What's happening in th with our events? Um, all that kind of stuff. So we'll watch for that date. We'd really love to have you join and participate in that ongoing conversation about who we are and where we're going. So that'll be sometime in, I think it's about the third week of August. So watch for that. And then you've been hearing me talk about updates to the building. Uh, those updates are growing uh, by leaps and bounds. Uh, and so, you know, this is a beautiful, historic old place. And the beauty and history that creates charm also creates some drama. We're constantly taking care of it. And uh, I was at City Hall the other day uh, fight, fighting over our landmark uh, restrictions, shall we call them. And, and I was casually referring to this place as Blue Lotus. I didn't say our formal name. And somebody interrupts me and he goes, is that the place where Buddha and Jesus live together? <laughs> Isn't that great? And so speaking of the place that Buddha and Jesus live together, um, you might remember a few years ago we did a pretty big effort to save our stained glass windows that were in pretty bad repair. Um, in the early days, Guy certainly remembers this, you actually couldn't barely see through these windows because they were covered in like fogged, broken plexiglass and other people had done various things to protect them. Now they're beautiful and in their glory. But they're actually starting to be a little damaged again uh, because we have so many tuck point issues on the outside of the building. So you've been hearing me talk about the staircase. Um, the staircase that we all come in is being removed. It is beyond the end of its life, and it's no longer... Uh, it's safe. It's not super safe. We would like to be super safe. So in the process of us figuring out how to remove the staircase and put a new staircase on, we ended up looking at... What else could we take advantage of in our efforts to preserve and protect at the same time that we're going to do such a big project? And so that led to us identifying that, that there's a lot of tuck pointing that needs to be done. There's a lot of structural work we need to grab and do. So the small project has grown in scope, no surprise. Uh, and we are in the final stages of permitting. So you're going to start seeing like public notice signs out front. Um, and as I've been telling you, I do believe that for eight, more than six to eight weeks, we may be coming in different entrances. I got to learn yesterday how long it takes concrete to dry. Turns out it's a really long time. So uh, we're making progress. But you're going to see people hanging off the side of the building, tuck pointers, uh, new stairs. 
our, our goal is to be done by the precept ceremony, which is the end of October. So I have a lot of people asking me, why aren't you seeing construction? And my answer is, because of bureaucracy, and because concrete takes time to dry, because what you think is going to take a month takes nine months. That's how it goes. We're making really good progress, though. Uh, and then last but not least, Monte just asked me uh, this morning, how'd the meeting go yesterday? And my answer to him was just so clean. It was, things are just going so, so well. That's the, how I would summarize it. Things are just going really well. And when I say, well, that doesn't mean there's not discord. It doesn't mean there's not disagreements or problems or broken mortar. <laughs> but what it means is that the people uh, that show up here every day and the people who are putting their hearts and souls into this place are using their practice to do it. We're figuring it out. We're using what we learn on this cushion to navigate and keep this community wonderful. And so we got new programs coming. We've got some really great tweaks to events. You're about to see some changes to the bookstore where we're going to have like a little bit better of a system and easier checkout so there's not lines on Saturdays. Uh, you're just going to start to slowly but surely see some progress. Uh, and it's just exciting to watch people do it with nobility and honor and just pure-hearted pure generosity. So thank you for all who are contributing with that. I think that's all I got. Anything else for you? Say again. Gra grab your microphone. Tell us. Yeah, so, so when you get up today, after we bow to the Buddha, if you could move chairs to the back and cushions over here, that way it'll make this room open and ready for tonight's event. We'd appreciate your service. All right? Thanks, everybody.